0: Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. This is the podcast for merchant sales reps and industry professionals who want to understand the industry and learn how to grow their portfolio. I'm really excited about today's episode. We're talking about uh, two different things that are really important. One of them is how to generate leads. And so we're interviewing the owner of Centrix, uh, which is a leading call center that provides leads to agents and ISOs in our industry. Uh, This is something I get questions about more than almost anything else, which is where do I find good leads? you know what call center should I use so we decided today let's answer that question by interviewing the owner and founder of Centrix. Uh, The other thing we have is Patty Murphy she's gonna be talking about metrics and really interesting data that she's going to share about our industry and kind of about payments in general that I think will really surprise you and it'll give you a little bit of a different perspective on the industry and how it really works and then of course we'll close it out with questions from the field. going to be a great episode. Let's jump right into it with our interview today. All right, so we have Carson Cook on here, and uh, Carson, just for everybody on the podcast, why don't you start out by telling everybody how did you get into this amazing industry?
1: Um, Well, it actually was was actually pretty interesting. Um, I actually got into uh, merchant services or credit card processing, um, you know, and I I was uh, uh, actually selling cars at the time. Okay, and I had a buddy that I played uh, a buddy that I played college baseball with that um, you know kind of lived up in Canada uh, for a while, kind of come down and. You know, basically approached me and said, "Hey, you know, uh, you should, you know, you're you're doing very well with cars. You should probably get into merchant services and kind of check it out." So, you know, it took him about a month to kind of convince me. I was doing, you know, pretty well at the at the dealership, and then basically sure. said, "You know, if you just same numbers there within processing, you'd be doing a lot better." And um, you know, what basically happened is I you know I put in my two week, or sorry, I put in my two weeks, took my one week, and then you know basically got out in the field, gave it a shot. Um, and and you know started doing very very well so i you know, i kind of got out there in first first couple of days ended up selling my first deal not knowing what i was doing but eventually <laughs>
0: been there done on it.
1: did a good job and you know and Shit. then uh, you know at the end of the at the end of the day um you know kind of kind of hit it hit it really big and did extremely well so
0: so when you when you first got out in the field uh you know what was your prospecting strategy was it mainly walking into businesses calling just networking like what what were you doing
1: um well you know the company that I had at the time um you know they provided they provided um, appointments which sure. was actually a very very good thing that you know kind of helped uh, you know, assist that process and, you know, a lot of it was, was actually prospecting, you know, and taking a lot of the, the sales experiences that I, I I guess I've had and the techniques that I've used, um, not only just with, you know, learning it within car sales, but, you know, kind of my background with communication and how, how to deal with clients that, you know, I, I kind of put both into the scenario. So, sure, um, prospecting was kind of fairly easy to me. Um, you know, I realized that, you know, this industry is, is a very competitive one, uh, it, which kind of leads me to focus that, you know, I, I just kind of had to... To sound like, didn't, you know, not sound like everybody else, right? Um, you know, and that's, that's the issue is there's a lot of people that come in and, and, and so I was a different kind of prospector, a different kind of guy with, you know, different kind of tactics and, you know, communication techniques to get in front of the owner and, you know, certain things that would just allow me an audience to kind of pitch what I was, you know, kind of laying down.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, so let's talk about a little bit of like, what are you doing now? And how did that transition happen? Because now you're not doing as much of the direct sales anymore. Now you've got the call centers and stuff. So why don't you talk a little bit about that transition? How did that happen? And tell everybody kind of what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, for sure. So basically what happened was, you know, i worked through, you know, various different companies, you know, started as a representative for, you know, four years, did extremely well in the field, you know, you know, got up to, I think, 350 deals in a year, was kind of my top as a representative, and then kind of went through and then, you know, graduated to, you know, management, did that for a while, was a VP of an office for a while, president of an office. And, you know, we just started to, we basically at one point decided to start our own ISO. So we, you know, we started Authorized International and, um, you know, and basically with, with that, we we worked a you know very very solid direct deal. Um, you know, with a couple of different vendors for, you know, different products and, um, and it went very well. Uh, but one of our main focuses was to kind of keep costs down and kind of grow, you know, efficiently, you know, a lot of processing owners that we know just, you know, we just didn't see the same, you know, business psyche that, you know, you know, me and me and a couple of our other partners kind of went into and decided that, you know, that's, that's their biggest kind of unused, uh, not, I wouldn't say unused, but, uh, you know, uh, wasted expense was the fact that they were spending a lot on marketing and not showing as much, results as they could so mm-hmm. uh, we decided to do a cost best mesh. we actually moved to um where we flew out and we started a you know a international business we started in uh a, a, you know india and then also nepal and then built two call centers over there uh personally so we lived over there um you know we currently have you know a place over there too and we, we you know we worked and created kind of a u.s office you know the outsourced sure. solutions you'll get that are all over the internet or you know extremely not productive they don't they have the numbers that you would have for an in-house call center and you know we just couldn't justify at the time spending you know twenty to seventy thousand dollars a month on marketing um, you know for you know for, for for a big office so we decided to do it this this way and you know we've kind of drastically reduced the cost and it worked out so well um, that we've, we've actually had some friends or other owners of processing companies fly out and uh, that they've run their own in-house marketing and we found out that you know we just didn't know but we found out that you know our our ratio to close deals versus appointments and um, all that are exactly the same. They're exactly the same as an in-house call center in the States. So we decided to, you know, a year ago now, so it's kind of coming up on a year start, start centric solutions, which is kind of solely based on services for ISOs. Um, you know, whether you're a big company or a small company, we kind of have solutions that kind of fit every different type of, uh, you know, niche. And and um, we we have very very successful clients that have pretty much, uh, you know, even shut down their full in-house marketing solution because of the cost of it in the United States to run. So, sure. um, and that's kind of how we got into Centric. So we still run authorized internationals and in ISO, and we've got managers and, um, but we also provide you know kind of our main niche moving into that is the the ISO services. So recruiting, sure. uh, you know, appointment setting and. Um, that kind
2: of stuff. I'm, I'm just curious, uh, using an overseas call center and, and, and non-native speakers, is that, an, is that an issue have you found? Was that, was it, did you have to be particular in terms of who you hired on?
1: it it was um but the difference is this is that is that um we we realized that we that when we started authorized international that was that was the main thing As you know a lot of isos for example um you know secure payments when they started they 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 started with the same thing they outsourced a call center that um was in india now the the concept and the idea of credit cards needs to be trained it needs to be right. uh, you know kind of put in with a system
2: because it's not so a, it's it, not, it's in, not a, right go ahead I'm sorry
1: no right, exactly. So we didn't hire the call center; we built it, which means that we actually we, we have a visa over there. We we lived over there for about three years. Um, we lived in the country, so all mm-hmm. of our ISO guys were um, completely trained on credit cards as if they were reps. They knew the industry in and out, and they were kind of one of a kind. So our our current team is the exact same way. They're they're not they're overseen by U.S. management at all at all points in time.
2: Uh huh
0: yeah that's great and so yeah I think Patty too is talking about kind of that language barrier I mean is it uh, yeah you know in Nepal and, and I mean are you able to find uh, you know I've had a lot of experience that too getting the call centers on where sometimes you're like oh that language barrier and it's like US business owners seem to be the least uh, comfortable with someone that, that has a, an, an accent, accent at, at all right? right So have you found that barrier at all or do you just are you able to find people that are that are you know very fluent?
1: Yes, we, we have some people that are extremely fluent. You won't know. Uh, we have some people that are not so good. Uh, we have some people that are kind of middle of the road and average. And it really kind of depends on the area that we're calling, you know, with. You know, at the end sure. of the day, if we call down south, you know, so a lot of the southern states, it does become a little bit more difficult. Um, sure. But one of our biggest ISOs is actually in Texas, which is really funny because you know that they, um, we've had a lot of really good success. Um, you know, down there, which is still the same area where if you get a phone call from someone that's foreign, they might have a little hostility there. Of course. Um, right. But, you know, it's, it's pretty much the, the the main pitch. I mean, kind of what you're getting off, you know, if you really have the addition, we're, we actually have more of the, the language barrier when we have a customer or a merchant that actually doesn't speak very good English. And that's kind of where the funny part comes in. Uh-huh. It's not sure, necessarily sure. the sure. It's not necessarily the American the reverse problem. speaking, but... When, Right, the reverse problem. So we'll get a, we'll get a, we'll get a, you know, um, you know, Spanish speaking
0: in Miami, Florida or something.
1: Yeah. Or like an Asian American and then we'll have an Indian and then they, you know, um, you know, an Indian origin person speaking and they kind of have a little bit of a dialect issue or communication. We'll have to drop that appointment or we'll have a, someone else call back. And so that's kind of been the main language barrier, but Mm -hmm. it'd be the same, I would say with a U.S. caller. Sure.
2: Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to circle back to the call center at the end to just kind of, you know, provide a little more information to ISOs. that might, I know, you know, just personally, all the ISOs I speak to, a lot of them are asking about stuff like that. But I want to circle back for just a second and go back to your sales day. So you mentioned your last year, you had 350 deals, uh, which anybody that sold merchant services knows that's a big number. Um, So talk a little bit more about that. So let's say that, you know, there's, I'm sure 100, you know, 100, 200 reps listening to this podcast who, you know, they're doing between 3 to to six deals a month and they're out cold calling, they're pounding the pavement. What advice would you give them or tips do you think you could provide? How do they get from that average of five a month to that average of twelve a month? What's what's, you know, usually standing in their way in your experience?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that it's standing I guess standing their way. The, the, the biggest thing with, with merchant processing is that you know there, there's so much in merchant processing, especially the fact that we have to deal with that the, the we get paid based off of commission. So the biggest thing is that when we get into the industry, we look at the fact that you're going to get your first deal, and that's your first focus, and then your second deal and your third deal. And your question is, and we did a, did a thing on this the other day, is that, you know, what do I get paid on that deal? When your sole focus is, which makes a lot of sense, should be on numbers, okay? And, that, and the the reason why I say that is is because if you sell, you know, an item with a commission scale that you're going to get paid a certain amount no matter what, like a certain deal, mm-hmm. um, then you can kind of judge what you're going to be paid. Well, in merchant services, depending on how your company or your, your, your company is going to pay you, you know, that number can be up in the air. It can be based off this. In residuals, there's no real answer. Not one sure. real person give you an answer to say, how much am I going to get paid for this deal? Um, unless it's a scaled amount or a factor scored and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. the issue with that is that, you know, that's something you cannot control. And the biggest thing in sales is that you have to rely first off on a third party to make a decision for your paycheck. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on my communication. I'm going to focus on my work ethic. I'm going to focus on how I can conduct myself first. Sure. So to best influence a third party, the second thing I'm going to control is is the number. So I'll spend forty, I'll spend five hours with someone to close a deal within the same day, uh, if I can, to move on to the next step or move on to the next deal. Um, you know, w- within that day to build up a sense of urgency um, it, and make forty five dollars as I would someone where I'd make you know a thousand dollars on that one deal. It doesn't matter. A deal is a deal, and and letting outside influences or the fact <laughs> that um, you know other things will will kind of hit you will affect your your number and the number in the gold that I focused on was the number of deals I could close in a month. If it was 30, it was 30. If it was 40, it was 40 and that was it. So if I close 40 deals, that gives me a certain number of, of time and, and most valuable asset of as we all know is your time. Right. So if I have to drive back to a merchant three or four times, the issue with that is that that's time I could be spending closing another deal. Mm-hmm. Now – the, the t- at the time, you know, researching the product that I would sell, I had to make sure 100% confidence that I was selling a good product in merchant services, a good processing product. Um, and and I had the company behind my name with a great customer service. And I had a full trust in my product. So therefore, yeah, so I believe with our industry, right? You know, and I believe with our industry that we're not selling an asset, they don't have to think about it. If I can guarantee this, and this is a trustworthy thing, you do need to make a decision today, which means that, you know, uh, it's a simple decision. Next month, yeah. whether I'm here or not, your customers will spend the same amount of money um, without me here. Customers right. come in by the same stuff. So at the end of the day, your decision really is, is first off, do you trust me, which we've established that. Second off is whether you want to spend $500 a month or you'd like to spend $400 a month. That's it. End of story. Yeah. So let's make it right now because, because at the end of the day, I have a lot of customers that I have to see, and they want the same program that we got you qualified for. Right. So I think that the biggest difference between, you know, those guys that are trying to close six or seven deals, hit those goals, is that, you know, persistence um, on trying to build up a process or a sense of urgency to get the deal done on the same day. If you're gonna sell a car, you should think about it. You know, if you're gonna buy right. a house you should think about it. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna sell processing and you're gonna buy processing, you don't need two days or three days to think about it. Right, and you need maybe four hours, but I'll sit here for four hours until we get it done.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny. It, it's I always am surprised at not surprised, I guess, but the top reps in our industry. You know the the truth is the data speaks for itself that there's not a ton of callbacks. There just isn't um, the reps who are you now again. There are those reps that are focused more on this particular niche uh, that includes technology. Where you know if you're going to buy a four or five six thousand dollar point of sale system, yeah, well, you might need to think about that a little bit. But right. right. You know, just selling right. retail processing where I'm going to save you money and put a terminal in here, it's a free terminal or it's a lease or whatever it is, those those top reps have gotten, you know, they, they have the occasional callback, of course, but they've gotten really good at closing deals either on the spot or, um, oh, you need to think about it? All right, well, I'll be back in about an hour. I got to go make one other visit and then I'll, I'll swing back by. You know, it seems like it's a lot of same-day sales.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. Uh, okay, so let's do this. Let's circle back to the call center. I just want to get some sales tips out there for all the people listening. So I know that they enjoy that sure. stuff. So um, let's circle back to the call center. So uh, we have lots of ISOs listening in. How do they get a hold of you uh, to talk about the call center and what kind of information would you give? Would you want to give the the ISOs that might be interested in some lead gen and marketing services?
1: Um, yeah, for sure. If, uh, one of the best ways, guys, to kind of get a hold of us is to also first kind of check out our services online. It's a very simple website. It's kind of like, very much kind of like our our prospecting too. It's uh, GetCentrics. That's G-E-T-C-E-N-T-I-X dot um, On there, there's there's a way that you can get a hold of us. Kind of send us a you know an email, um, or there's info at GetCentrics dot com. Um, is an email that you can kind of email directly that'll go right to our you know our HR department to where uh, what we do, um, and the process is very simple. I mean, every ISO is a little bit different, so it's not like a major thing. We have a, you know we have a 50 seat campaign with a giant. You know, very big ISO, 25, 50 seats. They kind of go up and down depending on the representatives they have, and then we go all the way down to two seats. So if you're one starting out, um, you know, at a cost-effective way, uh, we do work with you too. We make suggestions with some of our biggest ISO, or you know, from some of our biggest ISOs that kind of show you how to run appointments. They're a little bit different of a breed, but they do give you that opportunity. So that's kind of a way to, sure, you know, get a hold of us, um, and then. Um, uh, is, is pretty much the best way, and then we okay. take you through a process to qualify you and get to know your ISO and make sure that that we're successful. We build relationships, and we want your ISO to be successful. That's the end of story. I mean, if sure. we can, we if we can work with you on one or two seats, then you know we want five in one year, we want ten in the next year, and you know we're looking at bringing. We actually um, started a college. It's not a college, but a school out here that's specifically focused on training college. It's not like the states; you can't put out a Craigslist ad. We've actually had to build it from the ground up. Uh-huh. Uh train these people and when they graduate with us then they you know they get to work with us so
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, in my experience, I would. And it's funny too. I mean, you know, so much of even like on our podcast, you know, Patty, it's like there's always you know technology and cash discounting, and there's these hot topics, you know, Um, and then you have the things that are so relevant and still matter, but they seem kind of boring, right? And and those things are working hard as a sales representative and building a solid team. And one of the other big ones is if you're looking to grow your ISO, and again, maybe it's just you and one other person. um, Honestly you know, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, what's the number one thing that you've seen small ISOs do to get big, they get leads. Right. Like that's just what they do. It's so basic, but it's, it's so true. So that's awesome. Exactly. Well, good stuff, Carson. Any, any last remaining, I was asked this question. So, you know, sales professionals, what would be kind of your last, you know, tip or some advice maybe you would give to that person who's just getting into the industry like you, they were selling cars, they were selling real estate, they were selling insurance. They're either looking at the industry or they're, they're jumping in. What would you tell them? What's your what's your parting words for us of of wisdom here?
1: My parting words of wisdom, I'd say for you know everybody new that's into this industry, is the fact that you know everything that you've heard is correct. Everything that people will tell you is that it's very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's competitive. It's not easy, but that's the good part. That's the benefit that you get to know. As so yeah. a new representative, if you sell like everybody else, and if you sit there and you you know there's the sales pitch and there's this and there's that, that's one thing that you can rely on. So if you can learn how to sell in a competitive industry, be different, be yourself. Yeah. You know, be able to build up rapport. Don't lie. Right. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Just be yourself. The more rapport you're going to build, and the more deals you're going to close. You, the The difference is, too, guys, is that the that you got to understand is that we sell off savings, but at the end of the day, I'll sign a merchant. You know, hand over fist, I'll cost them more money. And they'll work with me because they buy me first and not yeah. the product. Right. Product comes second, you come first.
2: Yeah. It's the
0: relationship. Yep. It's the relationship. Exactly. Good yeah. stuff. Hey, Carson, thank you so much for your time today, man. I really appreciate it. Great info for everybody out there. So thanks for taking the time.
2: Really great insights. No thank no you, problem. Carson.
0: This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Green Sheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere.
2: I'm a bit of a data junkie. And there's no shortage of companies in the payment space willing to accommodate my chenchant, penchant for data points. Sure. In fact, early on in my tenure at the Green Sheet, I coined the term isometrics for a regular feature we have. So I thought it only fitting that I continue the tradition as part of the Merchant Sales podcast. One of the companies that does a bang-up job surveying consumers on their payment habits and preferences is TESIS. For going on eight years now, TESIS has has surveyed a representative sample of credit and debit card-carrying Americans. It publishes results and analyses in a document that's available on the firm's website. The data and analysis I present here today comes from the 200, uh, two, two, 2017 TSIS hmm. U.S. Consumer Payment Study. Nice. Understanding the changing technology landscape and how the effect and how that affects consumer behavior and choices is crucial to success for consumer-facing businesses and the merchant services providers. For example, one of the key findings I drew from the thesis report was that despite the proliferation of new payment technologies, credit cards, debit cards, and cash continued to dominate the payments mixed. Asked for the preferred overall method of paying, 44% of consumers said debit cards, 33% said credit cards, and just 12% said cash.
0: Hmm. Wow.
2: Now, credit and debit card preferences vary depending on merchant type and channel. For example, as online commerce growth continues, there's a growing consumer preference for paying for online purchases with credit cards. Of course. In fact, 48% of consumers prefer to use credit cards for online purchases, compared to just 28% that use debit cards, Hmm. and 12% said they prefer PayPal. 12%
0: 12%, for, 12%. Per, for
2: PayPal. Yeah. I PayPal still had that kind of reach. That's yeah. That's pretty good, actually. That actually is. Yeah. Hmm. And I think it's fair to say that the motivation of many of these consumers are the consumer liability provisions of that course. are associated with credit cards. Yeah, sure. Now, T-S also asked consumers to rank their payment preferences by store type. Hmm. And here's what they found. Debit cards dominate the payment preference mix at supermarkets. Which is not really surprising, no. considering back in the old days it was checks. Sure. Yeah. But 54% of consumers said they prefer to use their their um, debit cards at grocery stores. Yep. Half as many, 27%, prefer using credit cards, and 15% prefer to pay with cash. Hmm. Now credit cards edge out debit cards at department stores. 38% of consumers prefer paying with credit. 34% prefer to use their debit cards. Hmm. Just 8% prefer to use cash.
0: You think that's just because they're like unplanned purchases? That's what I think. Right, need more money, whereas you go to the grocery store, you kind of, you know you're going to spend you $100 spend, or whatever.
2: And I also think there's a certain thing, like do you really want to like be paying off that porterhouse steak a month from now? <laughs> yeah, with interest. With interest, yeah. you know? I mean, seriously. You talk about indigestion. <laughs> right, right. So, um, And then uh, debit cards also have the upper hand at discount stores. Hmm. Um, sure. And in fact, uh, 37% of consumers surveyed said they prefer to use their debit cards at these uh, discount stores. 27 prefer to use cash. And just 24% prefer to use their credit cards. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. I wonder if that's like the type of peep, the 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 type of person that shops at a discount store. Are they more likely to be unbanked?
2: Well, you know, I thought that myself. Um, and I go to discount stores. You know, well, I, I do too. I love going to discount. <laughs> I love going to the dollar store right, and stuff right. like that. And I one day I was going. I go to this one. It's called Dollar Tree. Everything's yeah. a dollar. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah, we have one. I didn't have enough cash on me. I pulled out my credit card, and I took it. And I thought, Wow. I know. I know.
0: What? I mean, what's that costing them? I know, right? Talk about a talk about an industry right for cash discounting.
2: <laughs> exactly. Somebody right? needs to sell Dollar Tree. Exactly. Somebody mm-hmm. oughta. Um, but I do think you know, I think there's something about that. But I really think it's more because it's it's a it's a small dollar purchase,
0: isn't it? Yeah, I guess people may you know they're more likely to have that cash on them because you
2: you have that ten dollar bill still in your wallet, or, or you, you'll use your debit card because it's only ten or twenty dollars. Right, exactly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um. So what else? Okay, pay at the pump gas stations.
0: Mm, this be interesting.
2: This I thought was very interesting. Forty-one percent, forty-one percent prefer to use their debit cards, sure, compared to thirty-four percent for their credit cards and fifteen percent for cash. Oh, huh. I thought that was very interesting, and especially because I'm a security maven, also, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the idea that you know, pay at the pump you know uh terminals don't right. have to be EMV compliant right, for another sure. 2 years right I don't like using my. I wouldn't use right. my debit. I would not use my debit card right at a pump. At a pump.
0: Yeah. I don't. I don't know if consumers though have you know consumers on mass
2: have they made those connections? No, they haven't. Because you right. know I, I've talked to friends about this, and you know I was making a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and she said, uh, "Oh, I always do pay at the pump with my debit card." I'm like, "Really? <laughs> yeah. Do you realize that that's the biggest yeah. source of skimming out yeah. there?" And she's like, "Really? This is a friend of mine who's very well." Educated. yeah and she's like well i just do it for convenience and i'm like and that's what people are counting on
0: right exactly because if
2: you don't want your account emptied out yeah you know, yeah. And also, I kind of think, well, you know, I mean, the 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 security, uh, the you know, liability protection on right. credit cards, right? That's what I look for if I'm I want to do it. You know, it's
0: funny. We were talking about in a different episode about how long how Sheets, the big gas right. station, still doesn't do EMV. Right. Imagine how long it's going to take them to do it at the pump. Can
2: you imagine? <laughs> in fact, I think I might have told you the talk about an expense. There was one of the sheets near me that got torn down, and they're right. we're putting up a new one. And I'm thinking to myself, I hope you're putting those EMV terminals in this one, uh, because can you? imagine? Imagine putting in new I
0: mean, new you're store? talking about $5,000 a pump in a lot of cases because yeah. they charge so much they have to disassemble the pump to put the new thing in. Right.
2: So if you're putting in yeah. all brand new pumps, you better make sure you're putting in the right kind of
0: terminals. One of these times I got to get this guy on the on our podcast, uh, I can't remember his name now, I'll have to look it up, but uh, he was working on a, a technology where the Clover Mini, mm-hmm. you could like uh, put it on the, or Clover Mobile or something, one of those, you could actually put it on the pump. Oh, really? And connect it into the store so you didn't have to So replace. you don't have to do all the replacements. Yeah.
2: I think some Somebody, they'll come out with something but yeah. anyway and that might be one of the reasons why they're letting it they expend oh of course because the cost is just unbelievable but so the survey also found variations in how consumers prefer to pay at different types of restaurants i thought this was interesting. Oh. Um, not surprisingly the preferred way to pay at fast food restaurants is cash hmm. about four out of ten people debit cards come in next at 36 percent just 17 percent Pay for the fast food using credit cards. Sure. I think again, like the grocery stores. Who wants to eat that hamburger right. and then pay for it a month? Yeah, you know, it's now? funny.
0: Like I agree with that, but like I never carry cash, so I'm just even the 44%. Even with fast food, kind of surprises me. I always use my debit card at a fast food place because I literally never have cash. But yeah, but again, I'm weird
2: like that. You know, I'm weird like that because I do carry cash. But right, I, I don't. <laughs> well, apparently not. You're in the majority of the 44%. Yeah, obviously. Right? Oh, I better change then. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Similar for coffee shops. Sure. 34 percent prefer to pay with cash 28% use of debit cards and 15% prefer to pay for that cup of Joe using cash hmm. yeah um, which to me says a big thing about cash discounting yeah. in coffee shops I could see that be a real oh. opportunity yeah now debit is a preferred way to pay at dine-in restaurants which I thought was surprising hmm. 38% for dine-in said they prefer to use debit cards uh, credit cards not fine, far behind with 36%. Sure. And 19% pay their tabs um, at, restaurant, at dining restaurants using cash. Sure. Hmm. Now, before I close, I just wanted to do a few words about mobile. You know, <coughs> smartphone penetration continues to increase. And while most smartphone owners don't leave home without the devices, most are not yet pulling out their mobiles to make payments. Yeah. Still hasn't caught on. No. And this isn't to say there an interest. Fifty-one um, percent of the consumers surveyed by TCS said they were interested in using their phones instead of plastic cards. Hmm. And that was up from about forty percent in 2015. Yeah. Um, and one in ten smart card smartphone owners already had loaded credit or debit cards onto their mobile wallet apps. Right. Um, well, you know, that
0: doesn't surprise me. I mean, my iPhone, I still right now could show you, if I go to my settings, right. I still have an alert. One alert for my new phone is that I haven't set up Apple Wallet. I mean, like, they right. they walk you through that right. when you set up your phone.
2: It's almost like you have to. You almost have to, exactly. Right. So um, among consumers who are already loaded a credit or debit card onto their mobile wallet or are definitely likely to do so. 68 said 68% said within the next 2 years they expected to be making half or more of all their in-store purchases yeah. with their mobile devices. And of course on the downside one in four smart card, smartphone owners said they had no interest at all in um, loading credit or debit cards onto the devices. Do you think Do you think it'll,
0: you know, if that really, if those numbers bear out and actually happens, which I would question because the, I think the reason consumers, I mean, I'm like the most, you know, tech savvy, early adopter person ever. Right. I don't pay with Apple Pay. And the reason I don't right. is because there's absolutely no benefit to me. No. None at all. None at all. It's actually kind of inconvenient because I'm usually listening to an audio book or something when I'm at the mm-hmm. register. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I have to pull it out. And plus I'm a little, Nervous about it because when they first rolled it out, they were having those problems where if you had it on, you know, you paid for the person in front of right. you, that kind of stuff. So I don't see a big advantage, but but hypothetically, if it does play out, you know, do you ever do you ever think about you know Apple? I mean, they have Apple Pay. Uh, Google has uh, what is it? Uh, Google Wallet. Google Wallet. Right. Okay. Do you then think that, Samsung Pay and could you see them just creating? You know, just saying forget Visa MasterCard. I mean, you can still use it if
2: you want to, but we have the Apple brand of, you know what I mean? I I could see how they would want to. I'm just not sure that's possible. That they could. I think, you know, the, mm. uh, it's, it's. Well, yeah, because
0: then they'd have to, right now, the the beauty of it is they're already going through existing networks. Exactly. They already have yeah, the rails. It's true. that
2: They'd have to build those rails. Yeah, that's expensive. That's, that, expensive. that's some
0: serious infrastructure. Yeah, it even is. Even for Apple. <laughs> right, right. So, that's very interesting. Well, there's some great statistics. Thanks for sharing all that. Sure thing. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquoteol.com to learn more. All right, our first question today comes from Jan and uh, Jan is talking about high risk accounts. So Jan is a uh, rep who normally sells traditional physical location uh, businesses, but occasionally runs across that, you know, high risk account and she's like, you know, what do you do with them? And so Patty, I guess, you know. What I always did with them was really simple. I found a broker, a high-risk broker, mm-hmm. and they worked with different high-risk providers. And High-risk is so different than right. regular you know, merchant accounts. The you know, application process is much more involved. The rates are really kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I had one where I would literally just send them a, a referral of like, hey, here's this merchant, and they got declined by my normal processor. Right. They would then, at that point, reach out to that merchant, and they would just take over the whole process. And if they made the sale, I got 50% of whatever they got. And if they didn't, I didn't get anything. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. you know, it's like, I was like 50% of something's better than 80% of nothing, nothing you know? Right. So that's what I always did. I mean, so Jan, I think, you know, that would be my answer to your question as far as what to do with your high-risk accounts. Now, obviously, if that's your whole business is high-risk accounts, well, right. then that's a whole different animal. Then you're just going to need partners that are specialized in high-risk. Right. And I think, too, one of the other things, I, I don't know your experience, but in my experience, you know, even just generalizing high-risk is not actually accurate. I mean, right. there's very different types of high risk. Exactly, the yeah. gambling, right? You know, uh,
2: you name it. Uh, yeah, I mean, e-commerce sites right. are high risk. Because you,
0: you, know, and you even have some that are that are just totally different, like furniture stores. Mm-hmm. Some furniture stores, because of their ticket size and their chargeback uh, history, right, are high risk. And so, randomly, you're going to run into businesses like that. And so, my experience has been, you know, I I guess the biggest thing to me is I try not to spend a lot of time on that as somebody where that's not my focus, Mm -hmm. I'd
2: rather just kind of ship that off to somebody else. Right. Expert, you know, find the experts that can help you with that type of stuff. But again, if that is your major line of business, then you need to make sure you have the partners that can support that. Right. And if that's your major line of business, you really want to specialize. Exactly. I talked
0: to a guy just the other day, maybe it was a week ago, and he made a ton of money selling merchant services to collection agencies, Uh which is a really... That's a tough one to find a, somebody to board with. Right. Um, and, you know, he he had partnerships with different banks that would take them on based on certain criteria. Mm-hmm. And he just went aggressively out there finding these collection agencies and got them on board. Right. So I think, you know, I, I think you can go that route and kind of specialize. Or again, if you're more in Jan's shoes, my advice is find somebody and, and just kind of sub it out. So well. uh, Here's a really good question. So we're talking today a lot about kind of this, you know, the idea of being an expert and things like that. And, you know, this was a, a question that uh, is interesting what factors impact if a regulated debit card is assessed the regulated debit transaction pricing of 21 cents and uh, five basis points? Um, is it necessary for the cardholder to enter a PIN? And just some kind of general misunderstandings I think about mm-hmm. about how this works. So I'll give my little take on it and then I'll let you take over because you're probably more the expert on this than I am. But um, so, you know, the, the main differentiator in what makes a debit card regulated or unregulated is the bank that issued the debit card. Yes, yes. If the bank that issued, the debit card had 10 has 10 billion in assets under management or more mm-hmm. it's regulated right and if not then it's not. Right. And it doesn't matter if it's PIN debit. If You, you can look at the, uh, I have a training course on our instantquotetool.com that's, uh, uh, which one is it called? Advanced Statement Analysis, where I actually show the, the PIN debit mm-hmm. interchange table versus the Visa and MasterCard. Right. The regulated debit is the same. It's debit. And that's it's a regulated. big that's a big thing right. right now. There's You still have reps in the field that are telling merchants, hey, if you put your PIN number in, the cost is totally different. No. Well, if your pricing is different, maybe, yeah. but the cost isn't any different, if it's Regulated debit. It's regulated debit. Right. Um, as far as you know, the percentages. If you're in a rural market, you're going to usually have a higher percentage of unregulated mm-hmm. because
2: there's a lot more smaller banks. Right. But 10 billion in assets may sound like a, a ton, but it's really not. It's not anymore. I mean, back in the old days, 100 million was considered you know a large bank. Right. Uh, now, now that's a community bank. Yeah. Hundred yep. billion is a decent, size bank a decent sized bank now. You yeah. know, yeah.
0: so I mean, ten billion. If there's, a, if it's a, if you have a regional bank, mm-hmm. they're going to have more than ten billion in assets almost exactly. always. The only ones that are having less than ten billion are going to be these really, you know, two location, three location, four location, these small, very small local small banks, small really. community banks, small credit <clears throat> unions. Right, right, right. So I think in the numbers we've looked at, it's usually north of eighty percent, usually north of eighty five percent, even mm-hmm. that are regulated mm-hmm. um, as far as the volume. Um, but I'm sure that varies. By by ge- geographic area and things. Oh, of like course, that. by
2: geography. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So, good question. Um, let's look here. I think I had one other one we we're going to answer today. Let's see what it is here. Uh, this is around PCI compliance, which fits right into uh, what Patty was talking about in the Insider's Report. So, uh, the question that you're basically asking is, um, you know, she wants to understand kind of the process a little bit. And for an agent, I know we already talked about this quite a bit, but let's let's get a little more specific and dig in. So, uh, I. I'm an agent out in the field mm-hmm. what are things that i should do to help my merchants to make sure that they're being compliant
2: well i would first i think i would just do a basic audit yeah of their of their operations right um you and i have talked about uh, you know cases where, you know, they write down uh, credit yeah. card numbers on, on pieces of paper. Right, right. I mean, just, you could you could go into a shop, you can take a, you can just take a look around and probably right. come up with three or four things right off, right the, off bat the bat of yeah. what they're doing. Well,
0: it's, yeah, like we were, we were sharing stories. I forgot, I was thinking that was on the podcast, but it wasn't yet, yeah, was it? Wasn't. I don't think it was. Yeah, but. that's, but uh, yeah, it was really funny. I walked into a, uh, a pizza shop one time, and I was installing a, um, I was actually installing an e-commerce Gateway on their laptop for their uh, delivery orders, uh-huh. while I was doing that, somebody called in to make an order, and, and then another employee was using the credit card machine at the counter, and they just had one machine, uh-huh. and so the guy on the phone, he literally wrote down the credit card, uh, cardholder information on a napkin. Right. I literally wrote it down on a napkin, you know, and it's like, good night, you know? Yeah. Um, the other one we were talking about is a jewelry store where they had a layaway program, and they had a, a, just a box at the counter that you put three by five cards in, and uh, what they were doing is it was their layaway program, and they would... Write the card holders information down on this three by five card in an unlocked box mm-hmm. sitting on the counter, um, and you know they had I don't know looked like they had a hundred in there I bet they probably had a hundred people. These are people that are buying expensive jewelry, right? This right. is like, I mean, if I was somebody who stole credit card information, that's, that's like my dream gonna come true, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, um, I think I think maybe don't refs get it overcomplicated sometimes. I think so. They feel like oh PCI compliance is a scary. No, no, like be careful how you handle credit card information. It's actually pretty common sense it's, stuff. It,
2: everything is very common sense. I mean, yeah. you know, be careful how you handle it. Be careful who you let access it. Right. Uh, be careful how you store it. Sure. Make sure that any third-party software vendors that you're using are compliant. Are compliant. Right.
0: Because right. if they're storing that credit card information, you know, and, and, you know, I'll tell you something, and that's just another little pet peeve of mine, that, but, you know, today, I mean, honestly, with the technology available today, as a so- and we have a development shop. Why on earth are you storing credit card information? There is just no reason to no do reason that. Whatsoever. Done. No reason whatsoever. You can put it, there's So all the gateways have vaults. Where you can just send it over to their server. Stripe has like all this crazy stuff that they use. Like this is commonplace now. You don't need to. You don't need to store this cardholder information anymore. It just doesn't make any sense.
2: And, and another thing that a lot of people really forget is passwords. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, how many people do you know that use the default passwords? Oh yeah, sure. Right, Still after Still. all this time. Yep. You know, change, you know, my bank makes me change my password every 30 to 60 sure. days. Why I, if somebody's holding on to credit card information? Right. I think that's an excellent that's idea. That's an
0: excellent idea. I mean, even using something like LastPass. Mm-hmm. Um, our our lead developer Jack, he was uh, all over me when he joined the company because we didn't have something like that, you know, and he's like, "All right, we got to have LastPass because we got to randomize our
2: passwords and right, right. all that stuff and so that's that security stuff uh, definitely matters. Sure. I mean, if you don't, you know, the, the important thing to remember about security is it's not just for your sake, it's not just for the merchant's sake, it's for the cardholder's sake. Right. Everybody has something to risk here. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Great questions, everybody. Hey, by the way, uh, do me a favor and send me some new questions. We're uh, getting a little low. We okay. have what, 25 or 30 questions left to answer, but we need some more. So if you got a question, doesn't matter, what it could be about gateways, it could be about PCI, it could be about sales questions or whatever, just email James at CCC. SalesPro.com, James at CC SalesPro.com. Send me a question. We'll, we look forward to it. We'll answer them. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.